we're doing what's called, or following what's called the lectionary, which is a set series of passages that take us through the Christian year. And so this summer, the, we're, we're going to be doing that. So we're not following a theme or, or looking at a book or whatever. We're following the lectionary. And the passage for today in the, the gospel is about the Good Samaritan. It's from Luke. It only appears in Luke. And Luke, with his parables, the underlying sort of foundation of the parables that Luke tells, Luke sort of places good value or high value and good character, no matter who the person is, whatever their race or nationality. Because see, Luke wants to make clear that Jesus came for all, not just for the Jews. You know, if you, you take the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, we've got the statement, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Last week, Jim preached on the 72 being sent out and the, the power of the kingdom being shown. And this week, we're looking at the Good Samaritan. There's probably a bit of a danger with this passage. We think we know it. We think we know it too well. But what do we take out of it? You know, if I was to ask you now, well, what's the story of the Good Samaritan about? You'd probably say something like, well, you need to be nice to people like the Samaritan was, not nasty like the clergy. It's one way of looking at it. But it's almost, in saying those sorts of things, it's like an ancient version of the AA or the RAC. You see somebody in trouble by the side of the road and you stop and help them. Yes, it's about treating people well, but it's about so much more than that. So, the story. Before this, in chapter 9, Luke tells us Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 51 of chapter 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's on his way to his death. And even just those words, he set his face, it wasn't something he was, you could feel his heart was lifted to do. He was he was setting his face. He was girding his loins. He was, in a sense, determined to do it. It's going to be hard, but he was going to do it. So he's on, Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem to meet his death when he meets a lawyer who wants to know how to move forward towards life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it says the lawyer was testing him. There's two ways you could take that. One is he's hostile, he's trying to trick Jesus. Or it, it, there's actually a, like a tradition of, of dialogue between the rabbis where the, it's almost like they tear each other apart to try to get to the truth. So we're not sure, is this guy trying to trick Jesus or is he, is he wanting to know what the truth is? So he's asking him a question to see what Jesus says. And that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question, in the sense, we should all want, want an answer to. What's life about? What's going to happen after we die? But that question is quite often lost in this story because we're so focused on the Good Samaritan and I'm helping the, the person who was robbed. We miss why Jesus is telling the story. The reason Jesus is telling the story is to give an answer to the original question. The lawyer seems to assume 
that he must earn the reward? What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But when, when Jesus answered him, we see that, that works aren't the issue because we know by grace we are saved through faith, not through works, lest anyone should boast. So it's not about doing something to inherit eternal life. There is nothing we can do to inherit eternal life. And then Jesus responds, what does the law say? You're a lawyer, you're a teacher. What does the law say? And the, the response from the guy that when he quotes the Torah, he's quoting it in two places. One is Deuteronomy 6, which is called the Shema, which uh, Jews would say each day. Shema just means to hear, because verse 4 of chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then verse 5 goes on to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be in your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. It's central to the life that God wants for his people. Love the Lord your God with everything. And then the second one about the neighbor comes from Leviticus, Leviticus 19, which is, it's a passage about various laws. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus also talks about, you know, what, what's the greatest commandment or summing up the law and the prophets. And he quotes, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. If you think of the Ten Commandments, the first four are about loving God, the, the, the remaining six are about loving your neighbor, treating them in good ways. So Jesus's reply shows the issue is not about doing stuff, but it's about our heart attitude. Do I love God fully? Because that's the starting point. Everything else grows out from that relationship, the relationship we have with God. Because to respond to the law means to love God. So then Jesus commends the guy, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Love God, love your neighbor, you will live, you will have eternal life. It's the relationship to God, with God, that brings life. And if we love God, we're going to love our neighbor, love others who are made in him, his, his image. And something that's not maybe obvious from the English is the, the tense of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, keep on doing this. It's not just about like doing it once, but love God and love your neighbor continually. Keep on doing it. So then the lawyer comes back with a question, and you're not sure, does he really want to know, or is again, is he, is he trying to sort of show, I know what I'm talking about? Who is my neighbor? Now, the teachers in those days tried to reduce the number of people who could be the, their neighbor because they wanted to make the law less of a burden. If you don't have so many neighbors, you don't have to love so many so deeply particularly the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Their various rabbis came up with stuff about if you see a Gentile woman in difficulty in childbirth, 
don't help her because you don't want another Gentile to come into the world. Or if you see a Gentile in the sea struggling, drowning, you're not obligated by the law to pull them out of the sea. The focus was trying to reduce the number of people they would regard as neighbors. But this parable removes that option because it widens the idea of who our neighbor is. I suppose the question is, who do we think of as our neighbor? This guy that Jesus uses in the story, but he's not named, and it says he goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's actually quite a big difference in height between Jerusalem and Jericho. Jerusalem's 2,700 feet above sea level. Jericho's 820 feet below sea level. Difference of 3,500 feet, more than the highest mountain in Ireland. The road was notorious for its robberies. It became even more dangerous. You remember Herod built the temple, this magnificent temple. Well, when he built it, he let off 40,000 construction workers, most of them unemployed, some of whom turned to thievery. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was an obvious place to rob somebody. It's full of caves they could hide in. It's usually quite, there weren't that many folk on the road. So one thing you might say is this guy was a bit reckless, a bit stupid for on his own going down this road. He was stripped, no clothes, and he was either unconscious or dead. Well, it says it left him half conscious, but if you're looking at him, you weren't sure. You couldn't tell who he was. We usually can tell people who people are. We, we make judgments. I'm not saying they're the right judgments, but by how they speak or what type of clothes they wear. We pigeonhole people. So I'm not saying it's right, but that's what we do. And I, I, the younger folk maybe won't appreciate this, but for those of us who grew up in the Troubles, can you remember going across to England? You had your accent, that pigeonholed you, and the English understandably looked on the Irish with suspicion, probably regarded all of us as terrorists. So our, our accent could give us away. The car registration made it obvious where we were from. And do you remember going into town? You remember the, like the Ring of Steel? And initially it was soldiers searched you, and then it was civilian workers. And then when you got through the Ring of Steel, the shops all had a wee retired man who maybe searched you and looked in your bag, and you're thinking, what use you're doing? I'm not, I'm not sure. But in the early 80s, Linda and I were coming back from a I was going to say an exotic holiday in Greece. I mean, imagine a boy from Dundonald going to Greece in the early 80s. But anyway, we're coming back. We're, the plane brought us back into London, and then we'd get the train up to Stranraer that night. So we had a day in London, and we'd go into Marks and Spencers because there was a really big, big Marks and Spencers in Baker Street. So we walk in, there's a guy standing inside the door, and I go up to him. And, <laughs> and this guy looks at me like... He was just waiting for his wife. <laughs> Whereas I just assumed he was there to search me. But, sorry, but the, the point I'm making is we, we pigeonhole people. It became obvious you were from Northern Ireland in those days. And the thing about this guy lying by the side of the road, he had been stripped, he had no clothes on, so you couldn't tell who he was. 
If he'd been wearing a Rangers or Celtics shirt, we immediately would have known what type of person they were, would we? Would we have gone to help him if he was wearing a Celtic shirt? It's a question to ask ourselves. So he's lying there, and the priest comes along. Priests would have, quite a few would have lived around Jericho. They would have spent two weeks each year up in the temple. So he's coming back from his, because it says he was going down. So he's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was on, uh, he was riding. He probably had somebody with him because he wouldn't have traveled on his own. But he doesn't even go over to see who this person is. He doesn't want to touch him because that would have made him unclean. He's not allowed to touch the dead and he thinks he's dead. But he didn't try and find out if he was or not. The Levite comes along. Levites probably wouldn't have held themselves to maybe as great a standard as the priests, but they followed them. They followed those, those standards. And he wouldn't have gone over either, didn't want to touch a dead body. So in that sense, the law promoted avoidance of, of going to help somebody. I, I mean, I've no doubt the priest and the Levite felt a pang of pity for the wounded person, but they did nothing. You see, compassion to be real, must show itself in deeds. It's not enough to go, oh, isn't that terrible? Unless we actually do something. And today we can be hampered by the meaning of the word Samaritan because it's taken on like a meaning all of its own. You know, the story is called the Good Samaritan. But it can be hard to grasp the hatred that the Jews and Samaritans felt for each other 2,000 years ago. And what's the current equivalent for us? Who are the, the others, the outsiders? Who are the them that we don't pay much attention to or won't spend time with or look down our noses at? I'm not going to try and name any types, but you probably have an idea of those that you would be surprised to see them helping somebody thinking, I didn't think that sort would do something as nice as that because of a low opinion of them. See, the relationships between the Jews and Samaritans in those days weren't good. The crowd would have been shocked. It would have been scandalized that the Samaritan was the hero of the story. But the Samaritan came, saw, took pity or had compassion, bandaged this man's wounds with oil and wine, played nurse for a day, put him on his horse or his, his donkey, and in a sense wrote a blank check. He gave the innkeeper money for a couple of weeks with the promise of more if needed. Now the inn, and I hadn't thought of this before, the inn is likely to have been in Jericho. There's no record of any or archaeological evidence of any inns being between the two uh, towns or cities between Jerusalem and Jericho. So he likely put the guy on his, his donkey and took him to the inn in Jericho. So you think about it. The Samaritan, now Samaritan, Samaritan came from, from Samaria, which was north of Jerusalem. Jericho was south. So he's, he's out of his territory. 
He's not in his own land. He's risking his life by transporting a wounded Jew into a Jewish town and spending the night there. It's like one of those Wild West things. Can you imagine him leading this wounded guy into town on his donkey and folk going, what did you do to that Jew, you nasty Samaritan? So, you know, it's almost like it'd be hard to get the end to start off with. And then he's to spend the night there. Probably again, lots of questions. Did you do that to this guy? The Samaritan didn't just help the wounded person. He risked his life to help him. So when Jesus asks, who do you think was a neighbor to this man? The expert in the law says the one who had mercy on him couldn't even bring himself to mention the fact that it was a Samaritan. Couldn't name him. It's also worth noticing, remember I said about the earlier chapter when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem? Jesus wasn't welcomed by Samaritans because they saw that he had set his face toward Jerusalem. So chapter 9, beginning at verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked him. Then he and his disciples went to another village. So just before this story that Jesus tells, where the hero of the story is a Samaritan, the Samaritans basically had said, get out of here. Yet Jesus uses one of them as a hero in the next story. The disciples would have been angry. James and John, with their compassionate nature, let's call down fire from heaven. Let's destroy them. And a short while later, Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of the story. What does that say about the compassion of Jesus? For us, when people slight us, how often do we want to hurt them? How often do we want to lash out at them? So the disciples probably were very surprised. So there's this Samaritan in this story, the good Samaritan. Luke also tells about the leper, the one of the ten who returned and gave thanks. It's a Samaritan. Luke also, in, later on, because Luke wrote Acts, in Acts chapter 8, Luke tells us about Samaritans, about how they received the Spirit when Philip was in Samaria, as much as the Jerusalem church. So Luke seems to be trying to say, look, guys, you hate the Samaritans, but actually, you need to think again. And then there's one other way of looking at it. As so often with our preaching, we must point to Jesus. It's hard not to point to Jesus, but it's something that we should, we should be doing. Yes, Jesus relates a parable, but actually, if you think about it, the Samaritan takes the part of Jesus in the story. We are the people left for dead by the roadside. We have been beaten and bruised by sin. 
It's Jesus who refuses to pass by on the other side. But it's Jesus who brings us help and healing by paying the price that was needed for us. So not only is Jesus pointing out who our neighbor is, but in a a short space of time, he's hinting at what he's doing for us. We don't help others because we ought to, but because we have received from Jesus life-changing compassion. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, it says, if we say we love God yet hate a brother or sister, we are liars. For if we do not love a fellow believer whom we have seen, we cannot love God whom we have not seen. And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love one another. Love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. So, the practical lesson of the Good Samaritan is to give to others what we have already been given. It's not so much who is my neighbor, but to whom should I become a neighbor? And the answer is we can't limit it. The story tells us everyone's our neighbor and we should be a neighbor to everyone, regardless of language, religion, or nationality. We can't hide behind excuses and just walk on by. So what does it mean for us today? Well, uh, Tom Wright, who I will occasionally quote, a former bishop and a theologian, says, no church, no Christian can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. We don't have excuses for allowing half the world to lie half dead in the road. And we are very good at making excuses. Another question is, as religious people, as Christians, are we prone to believe that going to church or having orthodox beliefs are what gets God's attention? See, we love God by loving our neighbor. You can't separate the two. It's about looking after our fellow humans, including the unborn, looking after the earth, having compassion, showing mercy. And the question I leave you with is not, who's your neighbor? Because you can turn around and say, well, it's Jimmy on this side and Maisie on this side and Sally who lives across the road. It's not that. To whom should I, as a follower of Jesus, become a neighbor? And don't limit it to people you like. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to each of us through this story. It is not just about helping others, although it is about helping others. But Lord Jesus, it's about recognizing what you've done for us and in our gratitude, showing compassion to others. Help us, Jesus, to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Lord, I pray through your Spirit that you you would allow each of us to go out of here today challenged by this story, not just thinking it's a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling, but challenged as to who our neighbor is and who we can become a neighbor to 
And the only reason we do it is because of the love you've shown us and the fact that we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.